Hey guys, welcome to the CP Junkie podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CPD Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. Hey guys, um, I'm your host Lawrence Doan and today we are joined by Dr. Sandra Pedram. Sandra graduated from the University of Sydney 24 years ago. She has worked in a variety of practices across Sydney and currently works in two locations in uh, the North Shore of Sydney. She has done extensive continuing education in orthodontics, cosmetic dentistry, facial aesthetics and communication. Dr. Sandra Pedram, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you're coming out of lockdown around this time of recording and how have virtual consults been for you? Um, look, essentially we um, sent out emails and whatnot to the patient base to see if there was much interest in tapping into that. And um, we did very few. I think most people either would prefer to come in face to face or delay it until they were allowed to come in. So I'd say I had minimal experience with virtual consults, but we did offer it. Um, so yeah. Mm. So you know, your CPD journey into developing an expertise in orthodontics and cosmetic dentistry, facial aesthetics, and all of the communication—how'd that all kind of come about? Um, look, I think you know, probably fairly early on from graduating, you work out that um, the journey of um, learning has just begun. You know, as they say, the good old joke of your practicing dentistry. So certainly every day is a learning curve. I think with that attitude, you realize that you've got to fill in all the gaps and all the interests that um, you might have along the way and, you know, do studies um, in initially probably what you think you're interested in. And then as, as you attend more and more courses, you can sort of, you know, narrow down your interest levels to some degree. Right. And so how did that change from when you were graduating as a student president at the time to, you know, what's developed now? Where were your interests initially and how did that kind of change? Well, I think um, certainly, as you mentioned, I've done extensive, um, you know, studies in orthodontics. I've done many, many courses. Um, part of that probably was the frustration that I seem to recall we had one, maybe two lectures in orthodontics and we were all just left so hungry for more knowledge. And, you know, we, we did half the course seemed to be on how to make a denture or, you know, how to do an amalgam filling and stuff that like within the first months you realise you're never going to do. So um, it certainly was to fill the gaps that I felt I had in my knowledge to begin with. And, you know, most of us growing up in Sydney have been privileged enough to have had orthodontics ourselves. So there's always an element of curiosity there, I guess, as to how it all panned out and why the orthodontist made some decisions that they did at the time. And yeah, that's probably um, one of the reasons why I was very attracted to doing orthodontics to begin with. Right. Yeah. So were you doing like weekend kind of courses beforehand or because um, because you didn't quite jump straight into that um, straight away. Right. You, there was a few years where you were focusing on a few other things before you jumped straight into orthodontics. Right. Yeah. So I had about three years where I worked in my first practice out west and, um, you know, I was hungry. I was hungry for the work. I was hungry to earn money. You know, we can all relate to having gone through the extensive 
um, you know, degree that dentistry is all about and you just want to pop out at the other end and just, you know, you've got your L plates and training wheels off and you just want to fly. So um, the first three years was just working like six days a week, you know, 10, 12 wow. hours a day. It was pretty much like an internship, just, you know, learn as much as I could. And um, and I was very lucky, you know, the, the practice owner certainly was very busy himself. So there was plenty of work to go around. Um, and, you know, working out west, you also get to do lots of extractions and lots of things that um, you might not be exposed to in sort of more, uh, um, I guess, richer suburbs, so to say. So, yeah, the first three years was just doing lots of stuff. And then from there, um, I changed the location at which I was working in. And um, I think that just opened my eyes to a very different style of practice. Um, and yes, they were doing orthodontics there. So, you know, I was very curious, um, general dentist doing lots of orthodontics. Um, and, you know, he was also very generous with his time and knowledge and very supportive of me doing um, something like ortho. And um, that definitely helped the journey. Um, there was equipment already there, you know, all the pliers, brackets, mentorship, all the things that I needed to sort of get it off the ground. Um, and yeah, that's when that was the first sort of long course I did, which was the POS, um, which you might be familiar with. Mm, right. So basically, um, you picked this one because I mean, at the time, there's probably a few different orthodontic courses out there at that time, right? But you picked this one in particular, because that was what your mentor was doing at the time. And that was the system that he was familiar with. No, actually, I, I don't seem to recall many other options, to be honest. That was almost, what, 20, 21 years ago. There wasn't any extensive program like there is now. Um, and it was also, I'd already done the Skip Truett um, sort of weekend courses. So I'd already doubled a bit in, in ortho and definitely the interest level was there. Um, and GPOS, from what I remember, was pretty much the only proper two-year program where you know, you could sort of, um, someone was there to tap into their knowledge, hold your hand, um, and you felt like, you know, you were learning something from the beginning, not just like a weekend course where, of course, that's nowhere near enough to actually do any proper treatment. Um, mm. So, yeah, that, that was probably um, the main reason that I did it. And I think, yeah, I do seem to recall that the owner of the practice I was in had done POS. Um, that probably was um, one of the um, recommendations, one of the, you know, people to say, yeah, this is a good course, you'll get this much out of it. Um, so yeah, I think the course is still around from what I know that people still do it. Yes, it is still around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that didn't stop your author education didn't really stop there. It continued. Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, you'd hope that once you start doing a particular type of dentistry that you know, you only want to keep adding to that knowledge. I mean, it's always nice to be privileged enough to learn on patients, which is effectively what you tend to do when you're practicing dentistry. But, um, you know, as soon as you start doing something, you realize that you want to learn more about it so you can keep improving and, you know, give the absolute best treatment you can to patients. I mean, you, you, I think you would have your head in the sand to, to say a, a two-year course in orthodontics is all you're ever going to need to, to be a good clinician at it. So, And also things started to rapidly develop in Sydney in terms of the style of orthodontics that was being taught. So a lot of the other programs now on offer are far more early treatment focused, which, um, you know, certainly gravitated with me. And um, that that was, you know, the EODO program. And um, even Skip Truett at the time was doing a lot of functional appliances and, um, you know, teaching sort of 
early treatment than what I guess we would have been taught at uni. Mm, right. And did you did you find that there was much? Uh, what were the differences that you noticed because you've been able to attend, you know, the, the two different programs? Um, I did them uh, almost ten plus years apart, so um, it was also I was at a very different stage of my career by the time I came to doing the EODO. You know, I'd already had over a hundred ortho cases under my belt, so it was probably good doing EODO um, like that. You know, there's so much content and information in that course um, taught by Derek Mahoney, of course. Um, and yeah, you know, it certainly has a very um, early treatment focus to it, which which was great. So to answer your question, yeah, they're very different. Um, PO, POS has a variety of teachers that um, used to fly out from the state. So I guess you also had um, a, a lot of different teaching styles, which, you know, can be good and bad. Um, and, and Derek Mahoney, I mean, he's such a dynamic speaker. I think anyone who's ever heard him speak can, can get, you know, um, so much out of his courses. He's fun, he's dynamic, you know, you learn lots about everything really so i enjoyed it on that element too um and of course the people you meet at the courses you know it became like a little family doing a two-year program in whatever it might be you you start to form some close friendships pretty early in the piece and you know you look forward to going and seeing them on the monthly lectures as much as you do in what you're going to learn so um that aspect of it was really nice Right. So basically, you, you, you've graduated and you're just dabbling in, you're just you're putting your head down, you're just trying to get through as um, you're getting, that, getting your hands wet and getting that experience. And then you've moved out to another practice and they're doing ortho. And that's why you decided to pick up ortho. So whilst this is all kind of happening, you mentioned there was a gap in between the two programs. So what were you start? Did you dabble in other things at that time? Um, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that was sort of more where all the cosmetic dentistry journey began. Um, at the time, the, the second practice I was in, um, you know, the LVI phase was going through Sydney. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Yes. Yeah, it's very big over in the US and a lot of people who are getting in the cosmetic is just going over there. Yeah, so that was, that was a really good learning curve as well and, you know, um, picked up a lot from those courses and then of course there was the almost that sort of weaved in quite well with the ortho and the um, tensing of the muscles and whatnot so the, there's a lot of overlap with the courses and I found that once you go to one program um, you know you start to learn about the courses that, especially through the colleagues that you're there with you know you start to hear what they think about the courses that they've also done and and the relevance to what you're currently learning in that program as to what you should do next so to be honest normally you're sitting there listening to the lecture planning your next cpd journey because it sort of piggybacks on the one you're in um, which is really nice it also you know motivates you to just keep going finish this course right maybe have a bit of a breather save up a bit more money and then jump into the next one um, so yeah, I think, you know, it sort of ties in quite well. And, and as you can imagine, ortho is the foundation for so much of dentistry. And I, I think I was really blessed to have done it early in my career to try and ensure that, you know, I understand how to make dentistry last a long time too. And I think, you know, without understanding inclusion and, and of course, everyone thinks, oh, well, you know, what's there to it? Everyone knows class one, class two, class three. But I think when you start to actually do ortho, you start to see what difference you can make in, you know, people's dentistry with just changing their bite. And I think that's a beautiful thing to be able to always offer patients first. Like, 
and you know if you know how to do it and you're passionate about it you know it's not that hard to convince them because they sense the the passion they sense the urgency and um i think that that's a you know a good thing for everyone it makes your dentistry last it means that the patient's getting absolute best care because you know you don't have to take as much tooth structure away etc so um yeah i think the two go together really well mm. You know, I'm just listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking that for a lot of uh, research grads when they graduate, they feel like I've got to learn ortho very quickly. I've got to go learn implants very quickly. I want to do all of these things very quickly, you know, and I'll do it at the same time. You know, would you say that it would, would you recommend that um, graduates get into orthodontics earlier on? Or do you think, you know, just get your bread and butter stuff sorted out first before you kind of get into the orthodontics? Because you're saying, having understood it you uh you know you understand more about how you make things last for longer yeah i mean there's element of that but you can probably do a weekend course if that's the only reason you want to know about ortho and really understand inclusion and then move on and do whatever you like i mean i think the answer to that question is you've also got to be conscious that, you know, you've got the right skills to get people to come back and see you. And, you know, part of my big journey in dentistry has been supplementing for each course I do in dentistry, I try and focus on myself, you know, as a communicator, as a people's person, as, um, you know, as part of a team, which is essentially so important to be able to get your patients to come back and want to see you. So, you know, I think, Sure, if you're a recent graduate and you've got time and money and you want to do lots of courses, there's nothing wrong with that. But essentially, if you do a two-year program and, you know, you, you're only seeing one or two patients a day and you're struggling to convince patients to come back and see you for a six-month checkup, then I think it's a big jump to then present like a $10,000 orthodontic treatment to them and have them accept. So, you know, the challenge there is you might have all the knowledge, but then you might not have the skills to actually, you know, jump that across to practical experience, which which you're going to need. I mean, we all take away so much from courses, but unless you sort of start to do the work pretty quickly after the course, it you know, the knowledge is not to the same level 10 years down the track to pull up your notes and say, right, now what did I learn 10 years ago? Let's I finally got that case locked in. Let's go. Let's do it. So I think it's got to be you're right in it. You've got enough patients that, you know, will accept your treatment plans um, and want to do the sort of dentistry that you've just learned of the course. Mm. You mentioned communication. So tell me how you kind of built on that. Um, look, I think, again, I was pretty lucky to already have pretty good communication. I actually put it down to having a part-time job from the moment I turned 14 and nine months, you know, I was one of those teenagers that was just so hungry for money. And, and, you know, I worked in like Grace Brothers and, you know, bakeries and all those sorts of places. And I guess talking to people just, it had to happen, you know, it just became a natural thing, any age, any gender, any whatever they're in front of you, you got to talk to them. So, you know, I felt quite blessed to already have pretty good skills on that front. And I guess, you know, it sort of made me want to do more and more because, there was also the interest, you know, when you're already a little bit good at something, you, you become more interested in it. And so there's so much around, you know, there's so many books on communication and there's so much, um, you know, information on even just human psychology. And I've always been drawn to those sorts of articles and books and journals and YouTubes and, and all of that. Um, I mean, I've done formal courses, like I did the um, 12 months hypnosis 
um, course that was tied in with the um, New South Wales psychology sort of degree. And, and that was really good. I mean, you know, I, I took what I could out of it and, um, you know, obviously added it into my work at the time. And yeah. Right. Well, tell us about that. So the, yeah, the, the hypnotherapy one, how did that kind of come into like, oh, this is something I want to consider doing? Someone had done the course, so that, that's how I knew about it and they mentioned it to me and um, so I looked into it and it just looked like a really interesting program and, and to be honest, if it was going to make zero difference to my dentistry, I still would have done it because I was so drawn to studying about psychology and, you know, I didn't obviously want to sign up to a 60 uni degree after finishing dentistry. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, it was a really, um, you know, good journey. It was like, similar to all the ortho programs like one weekend a month and then lots of homework in between um and he probably taught me a lot about psychology and sure we did actual hypnosis on each other and you know we, we no one walked across the road as a chicken or any of that stuff that people assume is to do with hypnosis um but yeah you know there was a lot of indirect stuff that i learned through it as well you know with language and how you put um, words together to communicate more effectively to people and so um i'd say what i got most out of it was all the indirect um, ericksonian style of communication um, particularly around treating children you know that that was a game changer i remember how much i disliked treating children initially my career and um you know i was young obviously didn't have any kids of my own but doing that course you know taught me how you can just flip things around and how you can get a child to sit still for you and open their mouth and you know it's just the words you throw at them it's got nothing to do with what kind of a dentist you are um mm. so yeah that is interesting yeah because obviously at this point you know you you've decided to pick up author and so a large probably percentage of the people that you're probably going to be seeing are kids and you know the you have to be comfortable and uh managing these these patients right so oh you need to have the skills to be able to manage these patients at the same time yeah absolutely and look as as i um did the early treatment stuff sometimes you're treating them very early on you know if you're going to get them to wear a myo brace or a um, you know, munchie and all those appliances, like you're dealing with, you know, three, four, five-year-olds. Um, but also parents are always watching, you know. In my experience, often the phobic adult patients send their little Johnny in first and they're sitting there watching, you know, they want to see what kind of a dentist you are. So, you know, it's a show, like the show is on for every patient, every new patient, you, you know, have to show them who you are. And, and sadly, it's, they don't care about your margins or the you know, color of your composites. They just care about your personality and they care about how you treat their little precious humans in, in their life. And so, yeah, often it's the child or, or vice versa. You know, mum might be um, a patient of yours and, of course, she's going to bring her whole family to you. And, um, and I think that's I've been really lucky to work in practices where they're probably in suburbs in Sydney where you know, the strong family networks and, and people start to trust you and then you get to see the entire family. And that's a dynamic that, um, you know, teaches you so much about life, not just dentistry. Mm, right. And so all this is all, so you, 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 I mean, back to like the orthodontics just for a second. So you, you're, you're learning about all of these different um, um, types of, you know, fixed linguals and then, you know, clear aligners is, is 
coming up on the up and coming, right? Yeah. And it's something that's um, probably initially wasn't taught so much. So you're seeing that on the horizon and that's probably incorporated into the program as well. I think the second program that you're att- the EODO, is that right? At that time or it wasn't quite yet? Um, not really. No, actually, no. The also programs I've done, um, I haven't done any official clear aligner um, program. I've done, I've gone to the symposiums and I've done a lot of the Invisalign courses they offer, but that's more like one day, four day, you know, that sort of thing. But I've, I've never done like a 12 month, two year clear aligner program. But to be honest, it's basically technology that you have to be taught. There's you know, if you know how to do fixed braces, it's the same stuff. It's just um, you have to know how to navigate Invisalign software or clear correct software. Um, so I think if you do fixed first, you can't go wrong doing clear aligners. Um, probably the other way, you know, if you just dive in and do clear aligners, you know, sure, probably most of the time it might work out. But, um, you know, it's always nice to have the the knowledge of, you know, when to wear elastics and the force of elastics and, um, you know, just all of that, like when to intrude teeth and when to extrude them and how that makes a difference for a beautiful smile and um, curve of speed and all these things that, you know, you get taught in a sort of a more comprehensive program. Yeah, because like I was just going to ask, a lot of graduates come out and they see like these clear aligners um, programs and they're like, well, I don't know, is there really a need for that amongst my patients to want that? Like, do I need to get my head into that space of fixed aligners? Um, But like you've just mentioned, it's important that you understand the fundamentals um, before you kind of jump into something um, that may be a little bit more a limited in terms of knowledge and uh, scope of what they can do. So then, you know, sleep apnea um, or sleep medicine yeah. starts to come up on the up and coming as well. So talk to me about how you kind of dive into that now. That was actually, um, that was such a fun course to do because in some ways, um, you know, having had the 10 years of, 10 plus years of ortho experience and having done the two different types of ortho courses, it was it was definitely the finishing course for for the orthodontic journey because a lot of sleep apnea is, um, you know, all the research shows it's to do with the position of the mandible and, you know, a trapped mandible, et cetera. So um, I'd I'd started making those appliances a long time ago and I guess, you know, you start to get fearful of permanent bite changes and, you you know, once you see it and um, you've experienced it yourself, you know, you sort of think, oh, is this really worth it, you know, someone's bite so important to me but of course the patients love the appliances and don't care about their bite changing but yeah it just made so much sense to do the course and I guess um it, it's probably changed my um 011 or 012 type examination to far more than just teeth and I think that's really nice too and um you know it's sort of you know as they say all dentists want to be doctors right like you know no one People didn't get into medicine, so they went into dentistry. And I think it's, it's a fun thing, right? It's also fun to help people. Um, it's very rewarding. You know, if you see it, you diagnose it, you tell them about it. Um, sadly, not every patient's interested. You know, you can spend half an hour explaining it to them and they might look at you and say, I'm just here for that, you know, veneer. I, I don't want to have anything to do with my airway. And so I guess that's also a skill to, to learn how to communicate to patients about their ill health 
at what stage of their dental journey with you because you know if they're not in your chair for sleep apnea I've just learned it's not the first thing you want to be throwing at them. You know, you've got to manage what they're there for first and get them on your side and then hopefully help them with their health journey as well. And that, and then, you know, they, they love you for life. They will definitely become your patients um, and follow you wherever you go. You know, that, that's a huge impact you can have on someone's health. Mm, I see. And then after this is all kind of finished, I mean... And then there's this injectable things um, kind of coming about. Is that right? Around this time frame? Yeah, the injectables was, um, yeah, I think just prior to the EODO. It was just when it had started, probably like I was maybe the second year that um, that first program was teaching it. So I did jump on that pretty quickly as well. And, um, yeah, again, good fun, you know. I think most dentists... Um, tend to do it a lot at first and then they probably become more picky with what they do. And, um, but you know, it's a good adjunct to your knowledge. Um, it really helps with, um, gummy smile, uh, treatment. So, you know, especially the cosmetic work, it's such a good thing to be able to offer patients rather than, you know, a Lafourte one or, or whatever, like, you know, who would choose that if you can just help them with two little injections, um, so, yeah, I do enjoy that side of it, being able to have it in my tool belt to you know, offer it to patients to finish things up. Yeah, I guess it is tricky. I mean, I mean, when you're explaining it to a patient, like explaining a Lafort one, they're like, what is going on right now? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see what you're saying. What are your thoughts on recent graduates? One become a more holistic dentist. Look, I think um, it depends, you know, holistic dentistry is, you know, there's lots of marketing out there. I, I know enough about it to know that, um, you know, I think it's, I would probably be practicing holistic dentistry myself, you know, apart from maybe not offering oxygen every time. I definitely tell patients to have vitamin C, you know, after extensive amalgam removal, I always use rubber dam. Um, I don't use a lot of metal in people's mouths. So look, I don't, I think it's just a term. I wouldn't get too hung up about, oh, I need to go work in a holistic practice to be a holistic dentist. I think you can, you know, be, and you can definitely have an element of holistic dentistry in your day-to-day -day, um, practice. Um, and, you know, some patients come in for that. Um, sometimes the really, um, I guess, far off, you know, off, off the grid patients who really want the holistic dentistry can also be very challenging patients. So um, you've got to bear that in mind. I, I think when I was doing a lot of headache work, I was attracting some of those types of patients. And, um, you know, we all know people in pain are not able to think straight. You know, they're highly emotional. They may not have slept for a long time. So, you know, it, you've got to also know that that's who you're going to attract if you're going to be dealing with lots of headaches and, you know, all sorts of other people who are wanting that sort of dentistry. And it's probably very lucrative because it's a niche thing and not everybody markets themselves that way. Um, but, yeah, that, that's my sort of take and understanding of it. Mm. So just be cautious and be, you know, um, be informed as to what you might be expecting down the track if you're trying to dive into this a little bit more. Well, I think just practice holistic dentistry to begin with. I mean, essentially always use rubber dam. You know, you, you, you should not be taking out amalgam fillings without rubber dam. So that, that's the first thing of being a holistic dentist. Um, so, you know, aside from that, the, you can do a lot of research on it and, and definitely incorporate a lot of their 
holistic types of um, dentistry within your normal day practice or wherever you work. Um, so, yeah. Mm. So as a clinician, you know, we all reach a point where we start to contemplate practice ownership, being a specialist or being a super GP or maybe thinking about starting a family. Can you share your thoughts on that? Um, for the majority of graduates in our demographics, the, you know, female dentists. So I don't know if that plays a part into all of that. Yeah, definitely. Look, I think I knew from a very early on um, stage of my career that I I definitely wanted to work with other dentists. Like I, I'm a people's person and I recognise very early on that dentistry can be extremely isolating. Um, and, you know, often we have beautiful team members around us, but, you know, they're from a very different education level. So being completely honest, you know, like where do you get your mental needs from, you know, as a day-to-day? And we spend so much of our life at work. So um, knowing that and also knowing that I wanted to keep improving as a dentist and I feel when you work with others around you, particularly with a hygiene department, you know, it does push you more to keep improving and being the very best you can be. You know, there's like this, unspoken subconscious element of like someone else might see my work oh my goodness it's got to be like amazing you know um I don't want anyone talking about my contacts not being tight enough or food traps that I've created so I think knowing that it, it was always an element of well what is the ideal in this situation and you know of course knowing I wanted to have a family too so I have three children now and even before I had the kids I I definitely considered practice ownership on many fronts buying in um, squatting um, you know all forms of it Um, I, I am a very practical person so to be honest you know I always ask myself what is the reason I would want to own a practice what would I hope to achieve? What, how would it change my life? And I think you've got to ask yourself that first. And, you know, people do it for all sorts of reasons. You know, it's, I, I think being realistic, it's definitely not, oh, if you have your own practice, you're going to earn more money. Like, I think you've got to understand that to begin with because that certainly can backfire. Um, you know, what are the, some of the other reasons? Control, like a lot of people want to be their own boss. You know, they don't want to be told what to do and, um, clinical autonomy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Or you, maybe you can't find your ideal job and, you know, you think, oh, I'll just create my own ideal job. And, and again, again, I think because I'm, I'm very practical, like I'm just sort of one of those common sense is my, you know, that's my, one of my strengths. Um, and it was like, well, you know, maybe I'll just find the ideal job instead of buying my own practice. So, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with the stage of my career and the situation I'm in. I'm an associate. I work in two different clinics. Um, I, I love both clinics. You know, I'm very blessed. I have complete clinical autonomy. I have a lot of say and control in, in many aspects of the day-to-day dental life that, you know, perhaps people, you know, don't. So for me, I guess it's never really made a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm not saying never, but um, also, you know, it's, it, I've been so blessed to be able to spend more time concentrating on my education. And I think, a clinic within the female colleagues, it's like a child. You know, we all joke like, oh, yeah, you know, I bought a dental clinic. Oh, yeah, that's my third kid or that's my fourth kid. So, you know, <laughs> right now I don't want a fourth child. I'm <laughs> happy with three. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's realistically a lot of time and effort in running a dental clinic these days. You know, there's so much to it. And 
So, you know, that's one thing you can do or you can spend more time with your family or you can spend more time doing courses and getting, you know, to do more fun clinical stuff. So, you know, you can't do everything all at once, right, as they say. So you've got to just work out what's the most important thing for you and, and go from there. And, um, yeah, I mean, half the workforce is female, if not more. So I think it's a really important question. And yeah. probably the other question is, if you were to buy it, when is a good time? Do you do it before the family? Do you do it after the family? And, you know, I, I know being this stage in my career, I know quite a few female dentists who bought their practices very early on and then had kids and then they quickly sold the practice because they didn't want to have the headache of running a business and raising a family. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> mm, mm. Is it the, is it the headache um, because there are like family commitments that you have to make because of the time and all of that, and you might be um, in a relationship where you might be the breadwinner in that situation, but also you have to you feel committed to. Um, I mean, I, I guess you can't speak on it, but I'm just asking for for your colleagues that you talk to and why they sold the practice after they had um, their kids. Was there a particular reason? Um, well, that's a that's also a really good question in terms of your relationship dynamics. So, of course, if you're the breadwinner, then that that changes things because perhaps your husband is very involved in the practice, and you know the situations where the husband is the practice manager, and there goes half your headaches, right? So, you know, and sadly, that's that's the unfair competition that you know a female male dentist have because often in that situation for a male dentist. The, the wife is often involved in the practice. So they have this default person to delegate things to, like, oh, you deal with the staff and, oh, you deal with the headaches. And so I guess as a female dentist and in my relationship, I, you know, my husband is very happy with his own career and, and has a very successful career. So he was certainly not going to give that up or, or did I want him to give that up to become my practice manager? <laughs> um, so that also makes a difference. And I think yeah, I mean, if, if you're already in a relationship, then you probably can answer that within your relationship of is this going to work for us as a couple? Um, you know, can you really give me the time I need to run this practice? Um, because I also want to be a mother and, you know, like <laughs> being a mother is a full-time job. So it's like how many full-time jobs can one person have? Um, and still like, you know, be an amazing dentist and be an amazing mom and, you know, do all the things they want to do in life. So um, yeah, it's also about the number of days. I and mean, when I did the maths, and I sat down with three different accountants, and you know, I looked at it very closely at the time when I was thinking about buying into a practice. And um, you know, if you want to work three days a week, like it really doesn't make that much sense in terms of finances. So you know, three different accountants told me at the time you'd be better off buying a restaurant. You're going to make more money through that than you know, buying a share of a dental practice and having the headaches to deal with it. So um, that was the advice I was given and I took the professional's advice at the time. So. Yeah, um, that's that's interesting. I mean, there's only more questions I want to dive into with that, but let's, let's continue on with, you know, with all the CPDs uh, that you did, what was a particular game changer for your dentistry today? Um, definitely the ortho, I think, um, and the communication, probably equal. I'd say the, um, you know, the, the, one of the practices I was in, we, we used to do all these team stuff, you know, the, the prime, the uh, pride version is the American version. So, you know, I started doing that many years ago and then sort of became prime in Australia. So we did all of that. 
Um, and, you know, that was instrumental to ensuring that patients were coming back and patients were happy and you could do ideal dentistry and you had full books, right? So, I mean, without a list full of patients, spending thousands of dollars doing a course and coming back to an empty book, like, it, you know, where's the common sense in that? So I guess that was all happening in the background. So I knew that confidently I could go learn new skills and I, I had the patient pool to go and, you know, do that sort of work on. So um, I guess it, that has to be happening. And if it's not happening, I think you have to take some ownership about it and make a conscious effort to work on your book. And, you know, it's not the receptionist's fault. Like often I think dentists just don't want to train their team. And, you know, they might, even as an associate, you might work somewhere and, and you give up and you think, oh, you know, they don't know how to book properly and this and that. And, you know, we've all been in those situations. But, you know, it's, I don't know, take some ownership, like spend some time training them. You know, what, what do you want them to say on the phone? You know, do role plays. Like what's wrong with that? That's just as important as going and learning an implant course. You know, you, you've got to be able to have your team answer the questions on the phone when the patients ring up and say, does, you know, Dr. S do implants? Like, you know, what's your receptionist going to say? Have, have you taught them what you want them to say to roll it out? Um, so, yeah, I, I'm very passionate about that. I think without a good team around you, it's very hard to do headache-free, good quality dentistry and and, you know, I've seen dentists who do really good dentistry, but still, you know, they can run into legal problems and other headaches because the team around them are just struggling. You know, they, they don't know how to manage that day to day that, you know, in, in the dentist's head, they have the ideal or maybe they don't. They, they, they wonder why it's so stressful. So I, I constantly spend time with the team. I'm very passionate about training and, and sort of finding out what it is they want to learn. And I'm always there, you know, come ask, whatever it is, um, you know, and, and often the new staff members might just get thrown in there and, you know, they're too young or too embarrassed or too much ego, whatever it might be, to, to ask the right questions. Like, oh, I had a new patient call and, you know, they're wondering why it's so expensive. I didn't know what to say. They're not going to come to you like that. It's, it's You've got to put your detective detective hat on and work out why people are not coming back if, if that's a problem you have with your books. Um, so, yeah. Mm, that is interesting. You know, as, as an associate that you still, um, you're saying that, yes, you have that potential to um, have an effect um, and, you know, it's, uh, you need to be hands-on about how you kind of approach it, um, especially when it comes to staff being, I guess, the first point of contact when a patient, you know, either calls in, recalls, follow-ups um, with an appointment uh, before they kind of get to you, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, interesting definitely. point, yeah. Well, especially something like the Botox and filler course I did, for example. I mean, you know, the, the staff had no idea. They didn't come to their very expensive weekend course or four days or whatever it was. So how how would I expect them? How would I come back to my, you know, clinical day and expect them to be able to help me roll this out? So, you know, we spent hours explaining to them what we can now do. You know, we um, started with educating them and then, of course, saying, right, so, you know, if, if patients call, you know, if we're going to spend thousands of dollars marketing it, then let's nail the, the conversation you're going to have with them because that's far more important than an advert or a fancy website. I mean, you know, patients want to hear it from the people that work there. So the better your team can talk you up, not even like to say how good you are, but to 
explain what it is you do as a dentist, you know, the more successful you're going to be. So I think every minute, every hour you spend on that just pays rewards, like unbelievable rewards for you down the track. Um, and you can't measure it. And I think it's, it's, I've heard it so many times dentists say, oh, why should I train her? She'll just leave and I'll have to, you know, train someone else. And, and I think that frustration, I, I do understand the frustration and it's not easy being a dentist and having, you know, staff that come and go and they're so sometimes demanding. But, you know, my answer to that is what if they stay? What if they stay six years and you still haven't trained them? Like how bad is that? You know, so train them and hope they stay and probably they'll stay more if they feel that you're bothering to invest in them. Mm, interesting, interesting. So, I mean, we talked about, you know, we're alluding to struggles that people have. Have there been any particular struggles in your particular CPD or dental journey so far that some of our viewers might not have known about? Um, struggles as in not understanding courses or what do you mean? Um, yeah, either or, like, you know, in, in CPD or dental journey in general. Um, look, I think back to motherhood, that's definitely the biggest struggle um, if you're going to use such a strong word. And, you know, I'm a very positive person, so I don't like to use those negative words. But, yeah, you know, I'd say challenge is probably a better way to put it. Um, definitely merging motherhood with um, keeping the sort of standard I want as a dentist has been um, challenging. Also, just dealing with different personalities. Um, you know, I've learned a lot. I've been very blessed to work in great clinics. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's also observing what it is that I don't ever want to do that I've learned in, in some clinics. So, you know, yeah, we all have challenges, you know, challenges probably with dentists we work with, with staff, um, you know, rolling it out as to how do I be, how do I stay the sort of mother I want to be and still continue my career the way I want it to pan out. And, and you know, I think you've just got to just go with what's in front of you. And I think you do have to keep going with your CPD journey. And, and actually, one thing I would say for, you know, parenting is I did some of those lengthy courses when my kids were quite young. And at the time, I think, you know, people would have gone, oh, you're crazy. You've got an 18 month old. What are you doing doing this? And all I can say is once they're playing Saturday sport, you know, it's probably impossible to do those courses. If you've got three kids that need to be in three different places on a Saturday and a Sunday because of sporting commitment, like <laughs> it's not possible. So do it when they're young, do it before you have kids and, you know, learn as much as you can because these days it, it's usually, you know, looking at when the course is on that I would have to think about that first before I sign up to something. It's like, would this work for the family dynamics? You know, can I give four weekends in six months to to this course? So um, that's a layer that comes into play as a mother um, making a decision about CPD. Mm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one that I haven't come across just yet. Um, let, you mentioned a few different things there. If you don't mind me just diving into them a little bit more. So. Um, you mentioned that you know sometimes you're working with colleagues. Uh, the, the different struggles, uh, whether it might be your, the senior dentist or someone that you're working with, how do you kind of cope in that kind of situation for someone that might be listening in um, in that kind of situation? Um, look, I think yeah. If I was to reflect on my journey, I think um, you have to be realistic with what you can change in in terms of where you work. So. 
you know, if you don't like the practice manager, you can probably sit on that and hope she'll resign eventually, right? Uh, if you don't like the owner of the practice, I think that's something, I mean, I shouldn't say you don't like. If you have tried your very best to make it work in that relationship with someone who owns the practice, and, you know, sometimes the situation is you start off somewhere and things are, are really good and then someone buys into that practice and that changes everything because all of a sudden, you know, you've got two different bosses and perhaps they're there for different reasons and different stages of their career. So all of a sudden the challenges that you face as someone who works there just arrive without you having changed anything to do with you and your sort of clinical day. So I think... Reflecting on my journey, you know, if they're um, involved with the ownership of the practice, they're not going anywhere. So if it's not working out, like don't bang your head on a brick wall, move on. Um, and, you know, you, you will never regret that decision because life is too short to be unhappy with things you can control. And, you know, we can't control lots of things in our life, but, you know, you can control where you work. And that's, you know, just an easy thing. There is plenty of work around. Don't sort of think, oh, you know, I can't see anything advertised. Go door knocking. Find a practice you want to work in and go knock on their door and say, listen, I want to work here. Is there anything available? And, you know, they might say no and say, well, how about half a day a week? And then, you know, if you're good, you'll build it up from there. That's definitely, um, you know, I think something you've got to be mindful for. You know, don't just search through CCADs or wherever you're looking for jobs. Um, you know, go get what you want. Don't don't sit back and wait for it to come to you. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, be a go getter and don't don't try to just um, have it be served to you per se. So one of the things um, a lot of graduates want is mentoring. You know, people interpret that differently. Some people say, I want to be held by the hand. Some people just want to be, you know, checked in once in a while, whilst other ones just want to be a fly on the wall, like, and learn by observ observing. So what are your thoughts on you know, recent graduates looking for mentoring? I think that's a really important aspect to what you end up uh, deciding or where you end up deciding to work. And I think also don't forget the mentoring comes in different forms. So, you know, reflecting on my journey, I'd say um, I took a lot of attention, I, I gave a lot of attention to non-dental aspects of practice ownership as well. And I think, you know, why is this person successful at running this business? What are they doing that's making them successful? Is it the marketing? Is it the people skills they have? Uh, because look, we all know, you know, sadly, lots of really good dentists are not successful at running a business. So they're, they're sort of not the same thing at all. I think, you know, if you luck out and you find a great clinical dentist who's also great at running a clinic, that that's probably wonderful and stick it out and learn both aspects. But, you know, there's always a learning curve wherever you are. So, you know, I think look for it. Don't just think, oh, this person does really bad dentistry. You know, I've got to get out of here. Think, okay, well, maybe they're a really nice person. Maybe they've had a staff member there for 10 plus years. Like, what are they doing to have achieved that? And what can I learn in this situation? Because, you know, I think there's lots of different layers of learning in dentistry. It's, you know, as, I, as I've said, you know, learning to deal with people is probably far more important than doing amazing crowns or veneers because, you know, unless you nail that first, there's probably not going to be a lot ahead for you to, you know, 
book in, in your clinical day or or what if you end up running your own practice and you never learn those lessons you're gonna to have to make all those mistakes on your own stuff and, and learn the hard way mm, interesting so you're basically saying um look at the soft skills that the um that the clinician that you're looking up to um is doing that you know he might not be saying specifically to you but it's how he does things um yeah. or how he manages people um, manage might be not the right word, but like, you know, how he communicates with other people around him to um, generate that successful vibe within the clinic. Definitely. And I'd say, um, interesting enough, I've probably learned more from watching situations on what not to do than I have with what to do. And and I think that's just life, you know, that sometimes it's a stronger feeling that that's created within you so you know I've, I've definitely paid more attention to those circumstances where I think wow I can see that this is a situation I don't ever want to repeat in my journey with working with team members and and I think you know you've, you've just got to swallow the fact of you know how integral the the team is to your day-to-day -day. like you can't you know put yourself apart and say i'm the dentist you're the nurse and you listen to what i say and you know it just it will not work out too well for you you've got to find those skills to make sure that they are fulfilled in their role too and sometimes it's not you know are they getting paid enough i mean that's something that you may not be able to control as an associate and you know it may not even be like oh i have to be so nice to them and suck up to them it might be what are you teaching them? Are you furthering their career? Like, is that what they want from you? You know, delegate. Like, they they want to learn more. You know, some of the best nurses I've worked with, sadly, have left the sector because they've just felt that they've reached a stage in their career at age 24 where, you know, they can't learn anymore. So they go and do hygiene or oral health therapy. But you just have to wonder, like, what if they were in a clinic where, you know, they, they could expand their wings a bit more like would they have stayed and that would have been such a good thing for our sector mm, yeah that's interesting and i guess as an associate you have that insight into it because you know sometimes these staff members are a little bit more comfortable to talk to you about some of the things that they might be um wanting to explore definitely yeah and i've got more time i think running the business day to day you know the bills paying this paying that managing people like that does take it out of you. So, you know, as an associate, I think you have the luxury of time to step back and observe all that and just see what's working and what's not. And, you know, if you want, if you definitely want to somewhere down the track, own your own practice, like it is nice to learn all those skills. And of course, to, back to your question about the mentorship, I think absolutely it's good to work with dentists who are good clinicians, especially to begin with, because, you know, you're not going to do your best work if your your margins are better than your bosses like in year one or, or first year or second year out but if you are in that situation what i'm saying is you know maybe don't just quit because there might be other things you can learn maybe stick it out and milk it for what you can learn as much as you can in in all the other wonderful things they're doing well um and maybe help them maybe say let's go do some courses together I and mean, they might be stuck in a rut you know they might just be so disillusioned with their career that they are looking for a young fresh person to you know take them on a cpd journey and and why not i mean you know it depends what stage of life they're at and how much ego they have whether they'd be willing to do a two-year ortho course with you you know if they're 50 why not 
you know, what's what's stopping them? So, you know, don't think that their learning is not going to keep developing like yours is. So I think probably what you can't change is the sort of person they are. And I think we, we have to accept that in life. You know, you can never change your partner. You can't change who people are. You know, obviously, if they're two years old, then sure. But, you know, by, by 25, 30, like it, they are who they are. People don't really change. They might morph 10%, 20% this way, that way. But, you know, it is what it is. So that's where, that's my earlier comment. If, if things are not working with that personality and you've really tried everything, then perhaps that's when you do need to move on. Mm. So who's been pivotal in your career path and why? Um, look, that's a good question too. Um, pivotal in the sense of, um, look, I think some of my greatest mentors are probably women out of dental. You know, I think, you know, you're constantly searching for what has worked with other women who've perhaps had families and are still successful in their own way. And of course, success is defined in so many different ways. Um, but, you know, it's, um, look, who am I thinking? I mean, there's always, you know, the, the CEOs, like the Gail Kellys of the world, where you think, wow, you know, you run Westpac and you've got twins. And how did you possibly do this? You know, if I'm struggling with working three days a week and having three kids. So I guess it's those stories that, that I'm, you know, drawn to. They're the articles I love reading. You know, I love reading the news and the paper. It's, it's probably how I spend my downtime, aside from spending it with my, my family, of course. Um, so, yeah, I'm all, always in tune of, you know, wondering how, how they got to where they got to. And um, I guess, you know, within dentists, I'm, I'm very mindful not to get drawn into, oh, who's got the best before or after photos on Instagram because, there's a whole lot of other dentists out there who aren't posting, who are also amazing clinicians. And I think we've got to, we've got to be aware of that. You know, it's also a generation thing, right? Like obviously, you know, yourself included, you're all the tech savvy posting, know how to navigate all of that. Whereas, you know, there's still some amazing dentists out there. And just because they're not standing on podiums lecturing, you know, it doesn't mean that they're, they're not as good as the person lecturing. Um, their circumstances may be different and that's why they're not lecturing. They might not be that sort of personality who wants all that attention. So, you know, I think it's just you've got to put it all in the mix as to um, who you're going to look up to. So, you know, I try and look up to all the people around me for what they're good at. And I think that's, you know, you can only learn from that. And, you know, there's always something to learn about humans. That's the beauty of psychology, I think, you know. Mm, right. So you're saying you've looked at the your inner circle um, and there's particular aspects about them that, you know, that you liked and that seem to be doing quite successfully at and you basically just speak with them and then just kind of get their insight into how they're um, obviously trying to manage or get to that level so that you can kind of um, emulate that kind of um, aspect, into, uh, incorporate that into your life. Um, Definitely. I think I would I would probably say I'm, you know, 5% of all the people I've worked with. You know, if you put it all together, that's who I am because I've, I've taken what I can from every working environment and thought, yeah, I really like this and I'm, de I'm definitely going to continue doing it this way or, you know, talking to people this way or, you know, marketing this way. And then, of course, you know, you sort of morph as a human um, on who you become. And and working with people, of course, is a, is a privilege of how closely you get to know them. You know, sometimes 
you spend more time at work than you do at home. You know, you have these conversations in the lunchroom and, you know, you might do courses together. And they're, they're all the fun mo- memories I have of my career of doing some of that with colleagues. And, and hence, back to the comment about working in a group practice is, is a real privilege, I think. And particularly working with hygienists, I think that's another point um, that I would highlight to a new graduate that, you know, it's, it's, it should never be a competition of, oh, you know, I can't give my cleans away to an oral health therapist and a hygienist and there'll be nothing left for me. And, and, of course, if you don't have a full book, then I can understand that thought train. But, you know, you can't start to do really more complex work because there's only so many hours in a day. So I, I would say I can count on probably two hands how many cleans I've done in the last 10 years. Like I I have not done any cleans for so long. Um, It's all done by the hygiene department that I work with. And, um, you know, that that's like a real, I I honestly see that as a luxury because not only am I freeing up my clinical day, but I'm also working on these incredibly healthy mouths that, you know, I haven't had to spend the time showing them the the flossing and the brushing. Like how, how good is that? You know, so I think, probably beyond knowing how to navigate the relationships with your dental assistants and your receptionist, the other person that I spend a lot of time with is the the hygiene department, you know, talking to them like, so what did you think? You know, what did you think about Mrs. Jones and the, the three crowns that she needs? You know, do you think next time we can, you know, explain it to her in a different way? You know, why do you think she didn't make that appointment, et cetera? So um, there's, there's a lot there. If you work together, you can work together so well. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Yeah, I guess um, for a lot of recent guys coming out to think in that, you know, that mindset is, it's an interesting thought because like you said, when you're not busy, you have, you're, you have this time to think. You're just like, oh man, like I'm not busy and they're doing the cleans. Like I'm free right now. I want to do those cleans. But then to your point, it's like you've opened yourself up uh, because now you can take on those more complex treatments that you're you're becoming more, you know, you're building your knowledge towards and you're becoming more proficient at. Um, yeah, that's an interesting um, topic. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, um, it's, it's definitely depends on the style of the practice. So I do a lot of checkups. So that's basically going into the hygiene room and touching base with people from, you know, say six months or 12 months ago and, Obviously, that's where there's power in how good a relationship you have with your hygienist in terms of communication and, and the patient understanding what optimum dental care they, you know, should be taking on for their dental journey. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you don't have that uh, relationship, of course, then, yeah, it can be a matter of, well, why should I bother giving my cleans away? And what if that oral health therapist does all my checkups and I'll be left with no work? But You've got to get them on side because you know it's a win-win too. Like if you give them work, then hopefully they can help you be able to explain things better to patients. You know, it's often much more powerful for someone else to say to the patient, "Hey, listen, you really should do that orthodontic treatment that you know Doctor X was talking about." Because look at all the wear you have on your teeth because you're not the one who's doing the treatment. So patients actually take that more seriously in some ways because they're like oh well this person's not actually benefiting from it so maybe I should listen to what they're saying to me so I think you've got to just yeah understand the power there once you've got your relationship working well Mm. 
Well, there's any more questions I want to ask you, but uh, just to wrap it all up, what would be any uh, words of wisdom you would give to the budding young dentist who's kind of graduating at the moment? Um, I think don't sit around. Like if, you know, take take ownership on your book and um, make yourself busier because there really should be like an internship for dentists. You know, I think looking back the first few years, you're so hungry and, you um, you probably don't really understand the level of risk for doing a lot of procedures. So in some ways you just dive in and do more, you know, as you get older, all all the colleagues my age say this, that you become more risk adverse because, you know, you sort of see things that have gone wrong with yourself or others. So you don't just dive into things the same way. You're more cautious. Um, So I think initially it's, it's a real waste if you're sitting around because you know, you, you probably have time, you don't have family yet. And, you know, just try and get as busy as you can, whatever it is you have to do. You know, if you have to do those checkups and cleans, do them, build the relationships with your patients, get them to come back, you know, take ownership when they go out to the front and they don't book the six months appointment that you've suggested, ask yourself why, like, do they not understand your gum disease discussion? Or, you know, did you not uh, train your receptionist to make them book better than um, how it worked out? So I think that's probably the first thing to work on and whatever it might be, you know, that might be more communication courses. You might be taking your receptionist out for lunch every once in a while and saying, you know, what are patients saying? You know, when when I leave them at the desk with you, like why do you think they're not booking in for the fillings that I'm suggesting or the crowns or whatever you, you, you're, you know, communicating to your patients and, and take their feedback. Like who better than them to tell you, well, you know, maybe like they don't think they need the crowns that you're telling them that they need or, you know whatever the feedback might be and learn from that just drop the ego i think that's probably the first thing a lot of dentists um come out and of course you know we're spend the the hard years you know perfecting the, the skill of dentistry and and of course it comes with ego that you know i'm better than everyone i'm, I'm the best dentist there is i'm better than the nurse and the receptionist what do they know they didn't go to uni and it's like yeah probably not going to get you far having that sort of attitude so work with people (laughs) yes definitely we're definitely still in a people's business aren't we (laughs) so dr sandra petra thank you um, for coming on the show today if you can let the people know how they can find you or what you've got going on in your life yeah definitely um i'm on all the platforms you know instagram um i've got my own website as well so drsandrapedram.com.au because i work in the two different practices it's just a lot easier having sort of you know what i do on a website um so yeah definitely i'm happy to talk to anyone who you know wants to find out more about any of the courses i've done or you know advice on practice um situations i've been in absolutely it's i think you know as colleagues we really should be supporting each other more and and never ever throwing each other under the bus i think that's just the the worst thing any dentist could do is to put another dentist down even if the thought is in your mind just never say you know what people what what you what dentists don't understand when they do that is you know, the patient doesn't think, oh, I want to come to you because you're better than the last person. The patient thinks, I don't trust any dentist now because the last one was a dodge and you're going to be no better. So we're actually losing people to all dentists by doing that. So, yeah. Mm. 
So, Farad, we'll definitely leave those um, in the show notes below so they can definitely get in reach with you. So, for our viewers, if you like this episode, drop a comment below on your favorite part, but don't forget to like and subscribe, and we'll see you in the next episode of CP Junkie Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, CP Junkie Podcast fam. It's your boy, Dr. Lawrence Stone here, just dropping in to let you know how much I appreciate your listens. We've officially reached 1,400 views and over 40 release episodes. Cue the applause, please. We've also just reached 35 subscribers on our YouTube channel. In this competitive niche climate, that can be very difficult. Thank you again for riding this wave with us, and I hope you get a lot out of each episode. I'm always trying to dive deeper into our guests' journeys, talking about their highs and lows. As we all know, no dental career is ever smooth sailing. And I don't want you to feel like you're alone in your journey. One thing I've learned is that you don't know who is listening, and even they can get something powerful out of a comment made by our guests. So again, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it with a friend.